Vicki Abelson, and this is Game Changers. And my guest tonight is Johnny Gale. Johnny, hi. Hi, Vicki. I think we're having some audio problems. Oh, see, now it's doubling. We're having all kinds of issues, everybody. So stick with us and uh, keep the faith because we're going to try and make this work. <laughs> Johnny, we didn't even have time to like chat and say hello because we were messing with this stuff. Hi. How's it going, Vicky? It's good to uh it's now do you know did we did we meet back in the day? I think we did. I certainly would, you know, uh, have, have noticed you. So I bet that we did. Well, I knew who you I've known who you are for yeah. you know, years. And I know I definitely knew who you were. Um, hi, Tony. Uh, Tony, um, I'm talking to Tony out here in, in Facebook land. Is there an issue with the sound, Phil, Tony? Because I'm hearing doubling and all kinds of, we've been trying to straighten out the sound. So tell me, guys, if it's okay. Talk, Johnny, let them hear you. Testing, one, two, three. How do I sound? More importantly, how do I look? <laughs> you look fabulous. <laughs> What, what does Billy Crystal say? I was actually in that sketch. You love marvelous. marvelous. You know, I was in that sketch on Saturday Night Live the first time he did that. Wow. Yeah, but you do look marvelous. You know, I might need to. I might need to, my ear trumpet in my ear to hear you. You know, but now your sounds good. You know. Am I too loud? Can can you can your can your uh, viewership hear me clearly? It looks like that people are hearing, it, it looks like that they're saying the sound is okay, is good. Okay, so okay. we're gonna trust that I'm just hearing this mess right, So let's, let's start off to remind me who I am. <laughs> the past and a half, I don't really remember. All right, I'm gonna freak you out because, or maybe I think I'm gonna freak you out. I don't know if I can put it on the screen or not, but I can send it to you privately on your phone. So I was listening to an interview you, you did with Mark Mendoza. Right. And at the end of the interview, you started talking about a friend of yours named Vinnie Graffio. Oh, my God. That's where I know you from. Well, I, if I know you from that, Johnny, I know you 50 years. Because Vinnie Graffio was my boyfriend. He was my boyfriend in 1970. Wow. I just, I just got goosebumps. My bangs just went up like a half an inch. No, you, I have to show you, I have to show you a picture. Let me see if right, I can see it on my screen. This is crazy because Vinny, I'm in his car that the next day he cracked up doing quaaludes. Did you, I did a lot of drugs with Vinny. Did you do drugs with Vinny? Let me say something. I have a lot of Graffio stories. I have okay. a lot of stories. Okay, so how long do you know Vinnie Graffio? I met him in 1965. Oh my God, you know him even longer than I do. Is he still yeah. alive? No, he, he passed in 1999. Oh no, what, what, what? of what? Uh, I'm not sure, maybe OD, but I'm not. Oh. And, and uh, I got a call from Paul Orofino, you probably know him too. And my son was 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 about four years old at the time, and as soon as I heard Paul's voice, I knew. That, uh, and I went to the uh, to the funeral and everything. It was really sad. And he was in his casket, 
And I told his brother, Mike, who I adored when I was a kid, I said, they got his hair come wrong. I said, let me at least fix his hair, you know? But uh, oh, he's I'm gonna show you his hair right now. I'm, I'm yeah. ready to these four pictures and to see if I can um, share them on the screen. Oh my God, you know, I always suspected that um, he might not make it very long. Then he really liked to, uh, then he liked the buzz in a big way. Well, I, I, in, in the end, I said, we, I can't hang out with you anymore because we enjoyed each other so much under the influence that I, I, the last time I saw him, um, we were out of control and, and I don't even like to, I don't want my son to even know because uh, I had too much fun with him, but he, he was uh, a pretty, I loved the guy when we, you know, we met in junior high school and, and uh, he was a, you know, a dear friend and, uh, and his brother Mike, I uh, was, oh wow, okay, yeah, and I see it. Okay, so there's Vinny, and then yeah. um, with his dog start. And now, yes, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna share some more. I've got I've got some more. This is crazy that I can do this um, with you. Um, I don't there's know. There's some stuff I can't say in a public forum. You know that that Vinny and I did. Okay, that was me in Vinny's car. I knew you then. I, yeah, I knew you then. I knew you I, then. I'm thinking, and Marty, did you know his friend Marty? We don't need the rest of you audience here. Forget it. Go away. No. Right, Marty Miller? Yes! Okay, wait. Now that one. Oh, my God. My beautiful Vinny, the guitar player. Did you play in bands together? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? I mean, I, I you know, we were, uh, we played, we opened up for Van Morrison and the Birds at oh. some at the Schaefer Festival. I did oh. so much with Vinny. Vinny played bass because I guess he felt that I played the guitar better, so he played bass. And Marty was our drummer for a while. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean... All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, what's Marty's last name? Say it again. Marty Miller. Marty Miller. Okay, so you ready for this? I told somebody today I was gonna that I wasn't gonna tell this story, but I have to tell you. I yeah. was like 16. Yeah. It was, it was those crazy days. Yeah. And Marty had a girlfriend, I don't remember her name. And um did you say it? No. Oh, and and we swapped in the same room. <laughs> We were Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And Vinny got so jealous. It was his idea that he beat yeah. up Marty in, in the very, room. Very yeah. Graffio-esque. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that, you know, Dunny and Pat and uh, uh, um, his mother worked in the cafeteria of junior high school, 74. And uh, his uh, brother, Pat, worked there. He was a studio business. And, and uh, his oldest brother, why am I not to remember his brother was 16 years older than us? Joe, Joe Graffio. So yeah, I knew all those guys, you know. Oh my God, you are totally freaking me out. I have not, oh my God. We're the same age. Vinny, Vinny and I were you know, exactly the same age. So I think we were a couple Vinny years was ago. a year old. I'm, I'm 65. I was born in 55. Right, so yeah, we're, I'm 68. Well, okay. I'm 68. Vinny was my older man. When yeah. he was with jailbait, and uh, right. and I probably met you in Bayside. Oh God, this is crazy. He was in Cordova, right? Cordova, or whatever. 
Cardozo. Cardozo for the photos. That's right. And let me tell you, yesterday I did a gig. It was so humid. I, I was half a bozo. And <laughs> I, I came in looking great. And then humidity kicked in and my hair failed. The music was good, but my hair failed. <laughs> well, you know, the, the hair is so important. But I like a little humidity now that I'm wearing it curly. Well, you're, you're in L.A., so, you know, today it's like the Amazon jungle here, so... Oh, my God. I bet that's true. All right. So this is wild, Johnny, because I thought I met you in the 80s on the Baker Street scene, because I know we have a lot of mutual friends there. Steve Conti, John Conti, all those guys. And and I used to do those jams down uh, at the Rock and Roll Cafe and at the China Club and Woody's and all. And I'm pretty sure you came and played on my stage more than once. I did. I'm thinking, yeah. I was going to jam with... Uh... Tommy Burns and, and uh, oh God, yeah, of course. Um, those guys, the uh, Tommy and and Louis Appel and Tony Bruno. Tony Bruno, yes, yeah. Me, but yeah, they would invite me up, and, and um, you know, we 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 did a little drinking back then, so it was uh, you know, you know but... little bit of drinking. So has has that? Or uh, are you? Do you still do a little bit of drinking? allow myself one Coors Light at 9 p.m. if I if it's available. And I'm very I'm very good self-control, you know. So well even that, out of control, I have good self-control. Okay, so Tony's saying what year did you go to Cordoza? Uh Tony, uh Johnny was what year were you in Cordoza? 67 to 71. Wow. Okay. So I graduated 73. There would have been a little over, but yeah. Oh my God. So Tony Vincent and Cindy Beagle both went to Cordoza also. Oh um, God. This is so crazy. This, you know, I, okay. Hi. I sound as good on your end, not as good on his. Yeah. They're having a little trouble with, with sound, but you know, whatever we're, we're making it work. Um, Tony graduated the same year. Oh my God. All right. Um, Tony was a, is a rock photographer, and uh -huh. she, she, she left high school, I think, to go shoot Poco or something. Um, but anyway, she made that great composite that uh, I posted of you on Facebook today. She put those pictures. Oh, that was great. That was, that was great. Yeah. Okay, so we have a lot of crossover. I thought it started in the 80s. Look at this. It starts in 1970. Um, that's just wild. All right, so tell me about... Growing up in in Bayside Queens, were your was your family musical? And you tell a lot of stories about your mother. She cracked me up. But um, was your mother musical? I came from a very musical family. My uncle, my father's older brother, who we idolized, was in the NBC orchestra under Tuscanini, and then he was in the New York Philharmonic from '56 to '76. My father was a pianist and an architect, and my mother was the most talented. She was incredible, you know, musically talented. Mm -hmm. And um, she always remind me that her IQ was one point higher than mine. <laughs> so, was a Jewish mother? Yeah, no, they weren't, we, we, we weren't that, they, I really wasn't that Jewish, but <laughs> they always used to say, where did this Italian style Thug, where did he come from? Because they didn't understand. But it was because um, the guys that I guess I was drawn to, the lifestyle looked more appealing when I was 
11 or 12, some of those guys. And, and uh, so some of the Jewish kids that were more studious, not so much. And I picked up a lot of those stylings. Years later, I was with Alan Menken in his compound and Doug Bestman, Tommy Mottola says to, Doug, to, to Alan after like an hour or so, he says, you know, Johnny's Jewish. So Alan pulls his chair up, like he's almost nose to nose with me to study my facial structure, you know, and I said, good Italian stylings, you know, but it, it's really like a, a, a Brooklyn Queens type thing, you know, and I can, it's fun to do shtick, but I can kind of temper it depending on the room I'm in, you know, so. Your accent makes me feel very at home. I went to Newtown High School. I lived on 108th and 59th. And um, this is your your voice is very reminiscent of everything I grew up with. So Tony Vincent, by the way, has a yearbook. She graduated in 71 also. Okay. All right, she's going to find you. Vinny and, Vinny and I were camera shy because <laughs> long hair. And the photographer wanted us to do something with it. And we said, I, oh, you know, forget about it. And we, and we never had our picture. And in junior high school, they didn't take our picture because uh, that was the year they transitioned to make high school starting in ninth grade. Right. So we were the first class in there. I had another friend that came to the gig last night, a guy I know since 1962, Steve Mongaluzzo. He went to His sister, Joanne Mongaluzzo, you might know them, but. They came to the gig last night, and in August of 67, we thought if we break a few windows in high school, maybe it'll delay the opening of the school, <laughs> so, but it, it didn't, you know? But uh, I, I don't want to, like, uh, uh, um, implicate myself in something I did, you know, 50, 54 years ago, you know? Holy sh I cannot believe how our paths have, have crossed over the years. That's just wild. So you, yeah, we were best, we were best, Vinny and I were best friends. I mean, we were like inseparable. And, um, he, you know, so that whole crowd, Dennis Levine, who became infamous in 1986 when he was the first person to take, get taken down for insider trading. Um, Dennis went into um, finance. He was a keyboard player and came from a family that had a little more money. So he had a nice basement that we used to rehearse in. Originally in 1966, he had Playboy centerfolds um, <laughs> wallpaper in the walls. But then, when the you know drug uh, uh, craze came in, it was all decal posters and black lights. So we had a producer come to see us, and uh, he um, had he was in the record business. He was older, but he came in. He must have been tripping because I remember he said. What? Oh wow! I never was uh, in a, you know, a situation where I was even live rock music, and he was so blown away by it. So he brought us into the studio. This is in 1968, and um, he his name was Jerry Samuels. Uh -huh. his, his, he was also known as Napoleon the Fourteenth. So they're <laughs> coming to take me away. So uh -huh. he used, I did his follow up. Record on um, Warner Brothers for God's sake, stop the feces, and it was never released. But Rhino released it in 1995. So, a friend of mine played it, and I heard myself, you know, when I was 15 playing the record, and, and it cracked me up. But Jerry was he also was a serious composer, so he wrote 
the shelter of your arms from Sammy Davis Jr., which is a song that you know, really tugs on your heartstrings. And so he did that, but I met him in a drug era, so he was uh, a piece of work. I remember being in the studio, and uh, I was in there for days, and my mother called my mother from the payphone, and she said, what are you doing? You know, she was worried, and I said, well, we're making a record. And she didn't know, what does that mean? So when I finished, I asked Jerry about, um, well, you know, are you going to pay me? What are we doing for remuneration? He said, well, you know, Gloria, that was his girlfriend. She really digs you. And I got a sleeping bag in Studio B. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, Gloria was not appealing, you know. And uh, well, I remember being there with Vinny, and we're in a session of passing the pipe around. And we take a couple of hits. And then Vinny asked me, he goes, how you feeling? I said, let's get out of the control room. And it wasn't part of it, was smoking hard, right? Which was THC treated spearmint leaves or whatever. It was angel dust. So we were sitting in the lobby and we were hallucinating and we were like laminated to the chairs. Oh, God. That's my Vinny. The guy comes in and asks, You want some white chocolate? I said, I didn't know that was a thing at the time. This is, you know, we were like 16 years old, you know? Right. But, um, I mean, this is, you know, it's a long time ago. I think about, you know, my son is 27 and he's been around a while. And this is, you know, he wasn't even a thought back then so long ago, you know? So, but uh, yeah, we were, we were in shelter. My mother used to say, you, you grew up like a dead end kid. I grew up in two gardens and then I moved from two gardens to the Bayside in 62. So the first month we were there, my mother drove us from the old neighborhood every morning because, um, so this way we didn't have to start that new school a month late. So, you know, he listened to the radio every day. I was always tuned into the radio and American bandstand. So oh, yeah. it was a good era. You know, here in Frank Ifield singing, I remember you and, you know, the Exciters and Steve Lawrence. <laughs> so, um, you know, we started there, and a guy that came last night with his sister, he's seven months older than me, she's seven months younger than me. I haven't seen him in 50 years. They came to my gig last night, because they live out wow. in And uh, so yeah, they were really, they had a great time, and, and uh, you know, it was fun seeing them. And, and, and it's just wild when you know somebody. I know the guy who used to play together in 1962, you know? I had a cousin that worked for Remco, and he would always bring me to Pools toys. So, you know, we'd, wow. them and we'd break them. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, I can remember going to a party and Marty, I think Marty had a finished basement or somebody else in the band. God, yeah. I, God, I, I met you in 1970. That is so crazy. All right, that is flipping me out. So- I haven't, I haven't matured since then, <laughs> same guy. You know, it's like you know, people ask me how old I am. So I'm 68, but I only act around 66. You know, I'm wearing the same jeans. No I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, I might as well. I have some of those. I think still. So, so John, so when when did you? So you have this musical family. Yeah. When did you? When did it hit you? When did you start playing? I first played the clarinet. Me too. Yeah, and I learned to read notes in it. But then my cousin that gave me a, a, a nylon string guitar, uh, it was before the Beatles, you know? So I learned a couple, like there was a woman my mother 
got me hooked up with that was a few blocks away. Her name was Mrs. Porcelain. And she taught me a few open position chords. And uh, I used to walk up there. And, and when I learned the chords, I remember teaching her. I didn't teach her the modulations because I wasn't that sophisticated. But I taught her I Walked the Line with Johnny Cash. She didn't know the song. So I, I was able to do it just in one key, you know. And right. She dug it. And, and uh, so anyway, you know, after the Beatles came out and we saw the Dave Clark Five and the Stones, I would fantasize about being in the Dave Clark Five. I wanted to be the guy playing any way you want it or, <laughs> uh, you know, play it all over bits and pieces. So, so, um, uh, but, but, uh, and we had, I was in bands. I had a band in 66, we were called the 11th Commandment, and we had band cards and our telephone numbers and, you know, and, and one guy, Alan Lefton, he's on Facebook all the time. He was our drummer. He's, he's a bass player now, but in those days he was a drummer. And uh, so once in a while, I, I can't communicate with him. A lot of the people that I know along the way are not here anymore, you know, but um, I used to play um, uh, band battles in, in, in junior high school and church uh, socials, like uh, CYO dances. And um, so um, this guy last night, we did a CYO battle of the bands. It was a rigged contest because the judges, one of them was Mike Graffio, who was a buddy, and this guy Mark Miller. So um, we played at the St. Margaret's Church in Fresh Meadows in May of 67. I remember my mother dropped me off and she said, have a good time. And I had a pompadour and a VA and a garrison belt and, and you know, the style of the time. So we still were playing like Louie Louie and Hanky Panky and Hanging on Sloopy. And there was another group there called Farley Bluff. And they had, um, their keyboard player was Al Greenwood, who went on to play in Foreigner. And yeah. They, they were progressive. They were playing A Whiter Shade of Pale, which just came out then. And the kids, the place was like sardines because it was so popular, it was so happening then. And the kids were still with hearing, uh, you know, Louie Louie. They, they didn't care about the local harem yet. You know, maybe right. But, um, you know, they we won. And uh, it was the first time I sang to, I was a singer and I accompanied myself on rhythm guitar. I was the youngest in the group and I sang to an echoplex. And I remember I'm, I'm a real mimic. So I had some new power that, you know, I never sang to an echoplex before. It was really exciting. So, uh, but the band was Steve Mongoluzzo on drums, who was a killer. Audie Villabosian on bass, Mike Sullivan on lead guitar and me on rhythm guitar and vocals, you know, so. Wow. So, did you did you study? Did you are you self-taught? How did you learn guitar, Johnny? Um I studied like stylings more of, of uh, thugs about guitar. I I uh, no, I, I, I I um this guy Steve Isaacson who recently I reconnected with he was I think he's a year older. He played me uh I was with Mongoloos and played us the fresh cream album. And so I heard NSU and Sleepy Time Time. And I never I played like Gene Cornish, you know, before. And, you know, another and, another so, friend from Bleecker Street, Gene. Oh, yeah, I know Gene, Gene's a dear friend. So um, I have a million Gene stories. But, but anyway, so so um, this guy, when I heard that, um, it, it was like, uh, you know, the ground opened up for me. So 
I, I, I was in another band with this guitarist who was a little more advanced than me, he was older, and he was playing, he was bending strings with vibrato, and he had a mayonnaise flush tone plugged into a strap. So I just watched him, and I took to it like a bird takes to flying because I could sing. And um, so uh, I made that leap. I remember I used to be in the Vagrant fan club, and they went from being like nerds to I saw him at the Singer Bowl in the September of 67, a rascal's headline show, and they were on the bill. And Leslie West like made that transformation because he, he heard Clapton and he became Leslie West because before then I used to see them and he was just like, uh, uh, you know, black horn glasses emerged. I think so. But, but, um, God, somebody who did my show taught, Le oh, Waddy Wachtel taught, uh, Waddy taught Leslie how to play guitar. I think well, they, they lived in Rigo Park in the same apartment building. And I guess he was more advanced, even though Leslie was a little older. Right. Waddy right. was a little more advanced. So Waddy moved out to the West Coast, which was a, a brilliant move like in the early 70s. And then right. he got plugged into Casino because we were still like mooks from Queens, you know. So, <laughs> so but, but, you know, we, we, uh, we were, you know, my friend Steve had a scrapbook. That was unbelievable. We were so into, and I, I was into older music because I have this incredible autobiographical memory of early childhood. So I knew every song on the radio when I was okay, three, so, four, five years So old. wait, so how how did you tap into doo-wop? Did you do it as you were coming up or did you go back and become a fan? No, I heard it on the radio. I was there and, and, and some of the underground stuff I discovered later on WFUV, like in 1966. My father had a uh, FM shortwave radio, and I tuned in, and I found this show called The Time Capsule Show with these two Italian guys that played this underground stuff, and I would make notes. I still have them in my drawer, over 500 um, obscure, like, underground doo-wop, you know, records. Wow. Uh, but but, but I, I knew whatever it was on the radio, uh, you know, like uh, Johnny Tillotson or uh, Jimmy Charles, or, or the Impalas, whatever was popular. And I, when, I, when I think of a song, I can remember the whole batch of songs that was out for every season of that year, starting around 58, you know, so. Um, wow. You know, I, so, so yeah, I, I, before I played, I was a fan, I played a lot of records, I'll tell you that, a lot of records. And how did you, how did the singing happen? Was it organic or did you, did you study voice? What was, where did that come from? Studied hoods, but but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but my voice uh, came from imitating like the Vito Balsamo from Vito and the Salutations or Larry Chance from the Earls. So I heard their part. And then when the Vanilla Fudge showed up on the scene, I said, those guys, you know, they were singing. Those were their influences. So they were like, a, they had this amalgam of like grease and rock, you know. So I was with that. I'm friends with the Soul Survivors. It was the same thing. They grew up, you know, teenagers of the 50s. And um, and I, I produced an album with Jimmy Braylauer for those guys. That's, you know, they were incredible. Richie passed away. Let me see, I have his picture on my, in 2017. He was incredible. He was a younger brother. He was a guy that sang the Bridges on his first video art. And Charlie's still around. You know, he's 10 years older than me. And uh, great guy, I love those guys, you know, and uh, 
So I have a million stories. You know, when we get off this uh, public forum, we can chat. Oh, and we can talk about the others. Well, I want you to give me all, we have a lot, we have so much overlap. Angel Rissoff, we'll get to Angel. Yeah, yeah. Jay Black was married to an, a family friend, and I know, and, and, and Kenny Vance, there's so much stuff. Before yeah. we get to all of that, um, because the, a lot the people that watch this show, Johnny, um, we yep. call ourselves the COVID crazies. Um, yep. we, when COVID started, I started going live every day, just kind of, you know, connect with people and be of service. Yeah. Yeah. So, what were you doing when when the pandemic hit? Were you working? Were you in the middle of something? What happened with you? I was I was doing incredible. I mean, I was I was like on fire with getting. And there's so much work and getting calls for some stuff, and then it stopped. And all I did was then I just did pull-ups. I did this jailhouse workout, and then um, and I, was, I said, if I'm stuck here, I'm gonna do what they do in jail, you know. So my I'm feeling strong and trying to be positive, and then I finish working out. I'm on the couch, and my son says, "Can you can can you get me the remote control?" And I was lazy. I reached backwards. And, and that was that. So I, you know, I tore my uh, uh, rotator cuff on my left. Uh, it probably was on this way, but but um, yeah, I was I was very busy you know, with Kenny and with uh, Stuart Lerman, who's a dear friend of mine, a, a Grammy uh, a winning producer, uh, working for Martin Scorsese and Mrs. Maisel. Oh my God! Okay, so we have to talk about all of those things. How did the Irishman come about, and what was it like? I, I interviewed little Steven in the 80s and you did that great number with him in The Irishman, but you were also the musical director. So how did you get that gig? I, I we actually, the song, the, the tracks that you hear in the movie, you see the band and then we're all miming the tracks, but I actually played on them, you know, and, and uh, we went into, it was about three weeks before we filmed. So it was very fresh in my mind. We, we cut seven songs. They asked me to for some suggestions. Um, and and uh, I suggested the ones that I liked, which three of them made the movie, you know. But but um, so they wanted me to be in the band for authenticity because it would it would you know I, I played it so right. Uh, right. But so we I told the uh, uh, the one was musical supervisor, and, and uh, I told them, you got to protect my hair. I said because it was supposed to be 1974. So, so I knew when I went in for the costume fitting at Catherine Studios in Astoria that they were going to say, you know, your hair's too long. So, um, so I, I went in and I said, oh, you know, so I called her. I said, Meg, you got to protect my hair. So she said, well, do you want to wear a wig for a wig? I said, oh, you know what? Forget it. I said, oh, I got a low system thing here. So, so, uh, Anyway, um, I was they sent me up to an office and the guy just cut my hair dry in the office. And he said, okay, he said, I, he said, I love, you love the way my hair, I love the way he said, I love your look. But he said, you really have a lot of nerve to do this. But he cut it and he said, you can go. I said, I don't think so. I said, send it upstairs because they're gonna want it shorter. And 20 minutes later, I went and he, he just hacked it all off. So we saw in the movie. I, it, it looks just, great. It looks great. Well, it was like supposed to be 1973. So, you know, I had like, you know, I could take a walk on the wild side. My hair was a little over my ears, you know, but um, uh, 
So yeah, we did that. It was interesting. I, I've been asked to do some film work, but I always shied away from it. So um, particularly when I was going through a divorce, because I, I didn't want my ex to think that I was like some big shot. And uh, that's another story. But but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, this. How did, you, I, how did you get Martin Scorsese? I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. I did. Um, I did the last season of Boardwalk Empire. Right. And, um, I did a vocal arranging and I sang and I played guitar and some stuff. And then we got vinyl, right? So I did a right. pilot for that. And I did the whole, and we were hoping that that would run for a long time, but sadly it did. And uh, then uh, the Irishman came. And first, you know, we did the recording and I hired some people like Chris Palmero, the keyboard player, was unbelievable. And we have an amazing repartee of wise guy behavior. And um, and they had, you know, the New York Philharmonic string section. It was, you know, we're serious. It was an unbelievable band. And Stuart Lerman produced and uh, Randall Poster was a music supervisor. But they really trusted me, you know, so, so um, and then um, I, I did the filming and it was, you know, I had like to be up, you know, it was a 5 a.m. call, which I'm really not like a morning guy at all. <laughs> I was a morning guy in junior high school. I would watch Wheel Camp, you know, and, and then watch Modern Farmer. And then my father would say, get up. It's another story. But anyway, we did. It was interesting to watch them do that. His, one of his, his main assistant director knew me, and he was really sweet, and he really liked me. And uh, it was a lot of downtime. I, I hung out with Al Pacino for about 20 minutes. I had met him a month after 9-11 at... Uh, De Niro's house we played at Harvey Keitel's wedding. So I, I met some of those guys back then, but um, I did uh, a bunch of things for Scorsese. And then I got this Mrs. Maisel gig with some other people. And they called me during the pandemic, but they, they stipulated that I would need to, it was a SAG gig. And, um, but they stipulated that I need to do two days of testing at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, COVID testing prior to the session. And I had to be there before 11 a.m. So I just like, I, I crunched the numbers and I said, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry. I just, you know, you know regrettably, you know, got to pass on it. But, um, I, you know, I was, I was really busy leading up to this. And, uh, and then uh, now, you know, I'm, I have some private, uh, um, you know, uh, clients that are like, uh, um, they're like regular people. That, um, that I, I, I still am active, but I'm not doing that, you know, film work or TV and that kind of, and Kenny, who obviously haven't done anything. Uh, I, I have, Kenny's doing a documentary that I kind of help him as a consultant on, so. So, okay, so when, so when COVID happened, all the gigging you were doing and the projects that you were doing yeah. stopped. And so what was your life like? I mean, you have some private clients, private clients, you're saying. Um, so did you have fear? Did you stay home? Did you do lockdown? Did you? Of course. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm damaged and traumatized from this whole thing. And, and, uh, and I have a son who's like, <laughs> who's like really um, um, a hypochondriacal guy. So, you know, he was terrified. He fortunately could work remotely, so he's been working remotely. Just went back to the office this week. Wow! But, uh, but I, I, um, 
you know, I became like the guy like sitting and watching the riflemen. So I was, you know, <laughs> living my childhood, your big chuck, you know, but you know, and, and, and uh, yeah, and I still I recorded some episodes and last night I got back from the stage. I was so spent. I put them on and I tell you both episodes, I was crying at the end. I'm such a sap, you know. But it was uh, um, yeah, they always would have like uh, um, I love the dynamic between him and his son, Johnny Crawford, um, and uh, it still holds up. I really have a, I look like a little bit of a hard personality, but I have a soft heart, you know? Aww. So, so how did it feel? How does it feel? How long have you been back out there gigging? Um, with, the, with the pandemic, you mean? Wh whoever you're oh, gigging, gigging. Now. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing, we did, um, We've been gathering, I've been creating content for one project. It's called That Motown Band. It's a, a Motown tribute act, but it's very authentic and we're very respectful of those arrangements. So I, I um, watched a few videos today. They're fabulous. Yeah. So we're America's greatest Motown tribute band. So the guy that is spearheading it, he's uh, uh, in the private sector, a great guy. And uh, um, so I'm musical director and created all these recordings and we you know did uh uh these hollywood squares COVID videos and and uh and now right, we're doing right. some other, but but uh uh and and he's been booking jobs he's got a couple in california a couple in chicago so uh, people are loving what they're hearing i said now all we got to do is make sure that when we come and play live that we did trick them and we gotta be good you know so um but we have this singer from uh, Philadelphia, Garfield Fleming, who I discovered on Facebook. And I said, it's David Ruffin reincarnated. I couldn't believe that. I said, wow. always like that. And this guy is he's, he's an incredible singer, incredible performer, and an incredible human. Wow. I can't say enough about this guy. So, so um, we that's who we worked the last night with Bill and Ben. And, and, uh, and people love it, you know, and, and we all these songs are high recognition hit songs and they're timeless, you know. So, um, and, and uh, I bring in a few that are like the, the guys in the group didn't know, they were a little young to know them, but they grew to love them, you know, because they're just great songs, you know, Holland Ozier and Holland, Smokey Robinson, and when they're writing songs and with that the production team and the musicians, I mean, those guys like swung their asses off still. It's just, I still listen to those records and then I have these, it's just vivid. They just bring back vivid memories for me and they still excite me, you know, when I hear them, so. That's fantastic. Am so talking so too much? No, I, no, you're answering my questions. It's great. So being in a gig now, I, I'm very curious. I haven't gone to a yeah. concert yet. I haven't gone to a club yet. I haven't gone to a movie yet. Yeah. Do you feel safe? Do you feel okay? Well, I'm vaccinated early, you know. Somebody got a hookup for me in January. I hope it's still good. There was a woman who had to make sure she kissed me on the lips last night. So right as I was going to the car, so I put my lips on just <laughs> when I got in the car, I put the Purell on them, you know. I mean, that's that's how traumatized we are, you know. And uh, yes, the gig we did before, one of the guys was, he, he didn't do well on the gig and he was coming in. He was so upset, and I told him, I'm wearing saliva all over my face. I said, I hope you're okay. I said, because 
know, I don't need to have a, that kind of problem, you know. So far, you know, I, I'm not worried. I'm, I'm okay. But, uh, you know, we're, this has just been too much, the whole thing. I don't want to get have, have you gotten on a plane? Have you gotten on a plane yet? Are you no, no. Are you concerned about that? I'm concerned about everything. I do. Sure, yeah. You know? yeah. So, so it's crowded? Were there a lot of people on top of each other and all of that? I've been, I, I was doing the recording sessions and one of them, we were in close quarters. So there was a technician and an assistant engineer. So I get a text, a very offhanded text to say, so-and-so has COVID. I was with him for three hours and we had masks and he had an N95 on and he wasn't facing me. So immediately, you know, I was, I was terrified. So I went, I got tested. And um, I came up negative, so I dodged the bullet there. Thank but, God. Uh, it was right after my first, it was four days after the first vaccination. So wow. I said, it'd be, it would be a hell of a thing that I've gotten through this unscathed. And as soon as I get vaccinated, then I, I, I catch this thing. So, and this guy had all kinds of uh, um, side effects. He had TIA. It was a mess, you know? So, um, but I'm fortunate that the people I, I enjoy Everybody I work with now, it's not like the old days when we had bands and like one guy hated another guy. You know, I have a lot of band stories. If I have about a thousand hours, I have, I got a thousand hours of Vinnie Graffio stories. So. <laughs> I want to hear some of them. That's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right. So let's run through some of, some of the people that you play. So Johnny, you are... I don't want to say you're underrated because to everybody that knows you, you you have like you you have iconic status for anyone that's ever heard you play. So I don't feel like you're underrated. I, I feel like you people know what what your value is. But there are people. But I feel like you should be you should be in the with the Claptons and the you know you should be in that group. You're a great 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 rock and blues guitarist. Just. Fabulous. I'm not going to be because I'm on your show. So, no, I'm not. <laughs> so, so when Gale Force came out, yeah. it gets voted best guitar record of that year by Guitar Magazine. So, Daddy Longlegs, I mean, it's just, this is unbelievable playing. And, um, okay, so, so, so you have your solo thing that you've done through the years, but then you've also, had incredible um, collaborations through your career. So I see that you played with Ringo. What was that about? When when was that? Well, Mark Rivera, but I wasn't actually in the room with Ringo. Okay. I, I had written a, a, a I had written a, a song with uh, Jimmy Bradlauer. Yeah. And we had a track, you know, and and actually, like they liked it more than I did the track. There was three that we you know, went on Mark's solo record, but. They, they really like this track. So I said, okay. So Mark obviously had a relationship with Ringo. So they sent it out, you know, because these days, you know, everybody does stuff electronically. So Ringo played, you could definitely hear it's Ringo. So it was me. And at the time, I was going through, it was a very, like a perfect shitstorm. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, so I was going through, it was like in the middle of a divorce and I had a, a bunch of other things going on. So um, they, they had an overdub session at the power station. So they got Steve Conti played guitar solo over my track. 
and uh, and um, and uh, I think they had uh, Charlie Drayton come into play on it. But anyway, it became like you know the track that they were pushing. I did some gigs with Mark who played the cutting room, and uh, you know, like I think the third time I finally got it under control with this whole. He had a videographer come in, and the film because the band was incredibly loud. The first time I played with him. I, I'm still have damage from that. And I'm like you know, always the father figure. Like I, I turn my little speaker backwards, you know, to, to not add to the fray. But at any rate, you know, um, Mark, uh, we, we, we made a pretty nice work. You know, I wasn't so much a part of it, you know, because I was going through some other things. But I do have three co-writes on it, and I played guitar on it and bass and whatever. So. Fantastic. How about, so I see that you, uh, I don't know what your association with Phoebe Snow is, but I knew Phoebe back in the late 80s and hung out for a while. Uh, what was uh, your relationship with Phoebe? My relationship was that I used to make her laugh so hard that <laughs> she, she would pee herself, you know. Aww. But uh, she was, we, I worked with her with Jimmy Braylauer, and it ended up like she just wanted to hang, so we'd go out and we'd get hamburgers, you know. And, and, the uh, best. Yeah, no, she was, you know, great hang. She was having, you know, she, I gave her like a consultation on uh, regularity because I was trying to help her out a little bit and I got her some stuff. And then she said, no, I like it. <laughs> you take it. I said, I don't, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I got that. I figured that out. I figured it out in 1968. And I'll tell you, I, you know, Vicky, I, I saw like in the supermarket the cereal called Old Bread and it said the natural laxative cereal. I said, that intrigued me. So I bought it and I had a big heaping bowl and, and I went to school and then I came home two ways I would come home, but this day I came home the long way by Springfield Boulevard. And then as I'm walking, something happened to me, something that I never felt before, like my water broke. <laughs> so oh, I, I, I had, I, I tried to squeeze my cheeks together and see if I could run home, but I knew it wasn't happening. And so, I ran into the Chinese hand laundry. They didn't speak a word of English. And I knew that their son was a real hood, you know. And uh, I just ran in and I said, bathroom. And I dressed <laughs> And I'll never forget. I'll never forget. It gets even more vivid, but I won't go into that. For <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so anyway, I helped Phoebe out with that. I tried to. And we wrote some songs and I had her. I used to make her laugh, and that was the best medicine for all of us. You know, and uh, we wrote some stuff, uh, but we did the last recording she ever made. We did her version, a version for her. It's all in the game. One of my favorite childhood songs. That was a monster hit in the fall of 1958. Tommy Edwards, made wow. uh, You know, loved it. I didn't the words. I was not lyrics didn't mean much to me then. I just associated with the affection I had for my father. Oddly enough, I used to love to rub his head. He had a, we had crew cuts, you know, and, and uh, but that song was out um, at a time when the Valari by Dominico Madunio was out and, and uh, Elvis Presley, a hard-headed woman. And 58 was a big year for kids in rock and roll and hula hoops. And, but but um, anyway, she loved the song and we did a version of it. It was the last thing she ever recorded and I do have it. I did it with uh, Jimmy Braylauer, and I played guitar and bass, and, and she sang. I had a transposer to a key that was 
a little bit uh, harder for me, but you know, we did it because that's what we do. But um, yeah, she was great. I mean, she was, you know, tremendous fun. And uh, it was very sad when she passed. Very sad. Very, very sad. How about Cindy Lauper? What What was your uh, relationship? We used to date. And she rem reminded me, I did like the Today Show with her, and she said, Last time I saw her, like in person, was 2004, but she said to the band, we're getting ready to go on the air. And she said, you know, Johnny used to date. I said, well, why don't we still do that? She said, well, I'm married. You know? So I said, all right. But anyway, I met her. I was with a group called Baby, and she had a group called uh, Doc Holiday. My memory serves me right. And she would come to gigs, and she like the way I played or the way I looked at She'd be in front of me going, do it, Johnny, you know. And we became friends in, 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 in 1980. I didn't see him in a few years. And I'm in a diner on Queens Boulevard. And I hear from across the diner, Johnny Gale. So it's her, she has a band called, um, uh, what's the Roy Orbison song? Blue, uh, oh, what was her name? See, I'm at a senior moment now. That is crazy. My mind flooded with thoughts. But anyway, she had a band of John Tory was in it. And she said, no one will book us. No one can get us gigs. So uh, um, I got to think of a song. Sha la la do de wa dum 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 yep, yep, um, Blue Angel. Ah, Blue Angel. Yeah, sure. She couldn't get arrested, so I said, I'll see what I can do. And this group I was with at the time, Samantha, we had a steady Thursday, it speaks. So Phil was still, you know, ran the place. And so I, I talked to Phil and I got them to open up for us. And uh, so, and they were great. I said, all right, maybe it was a mistake, a professional mistake. They were really great. And I remember she did lipstick on your collar and she was a great uh, performer. And she was a killer, you know. And I remember, you know, we'd go out and I'd be at her house in Woodhaven, and she would find these eclectic people in that neighborhood, really a blue collar area. And but she found these artful people there, and she introduced me to them. And we'd go to the museum. We, you know, she was really, you know, something special. And and uh, she had a burning desire, which I never had, to be famous. I'm the worst self promoter. She had a burning desire. And uh, I, I sang on uh, um, her epic uh, send-off album. I'm, I'm doing a lot of background vocals. And I sang with her at Carnegie Hall. Wow. Uh, they did a benefit there in 2000. And I did a duet with her, you know. And, and uh, I just I, I had an F-sharp. I just was worried about being able to hit that F-sharp, you know, in full voice. But, it worked out fine. And she told me afterwards, she goes, you're the only one that helped me when no one else would. You know, she remembered it. It was, you know, 1980. And now it's like, I guess, 20 years later, you know, or, yeah, 20 years later. So um, I think Cindy got screwed because she came out at exactly the same time as Madonna. Right. And Madonna just over you know it was like cindy was the one with the voice cindy was the one with the talent and madonna just steamrollered over everything his manager told me that if you think cindy was ambitious 
compared to Madonna, she said, Madonna was uh, um, talking about a burning desire. I mean, yeah. Cindy was, uh, you know, not ambitious at all compared to her. So she right. really, you know, got blown up to, you know, the, the heights that, the, the, you know, the, the, the biggest you can make show business, obviously. Cindy was huge. I mean, Cindy's a real talent and, and uh, just was a real special person. And, uh, I was happy that I was in the right place enough for us to be friends, and we we you know we were dating for a while, and and uh, she she uh, I, I remember like Bill Whitman, who producer, said when I was recording doing vocals for her in her garage, she had a studio in there. She said that I was the only one that used the bathroom in her house, <laughs> so <laughs> no one else is allowed to do that. And I said, well, okay, you know, she, you know, she knows that I, I was, uh, I helped her when she needed help. You know Kevin Jenkins, the bass player? I know his name. I can't say that I know him. Kevin played with, with Cindy for, at the, when she was, yeah, when she was, yeah, back then. And, and I met Cindy when our kids, our, our sons were uh, interviewing for preschool. We had to be at an inter, a parent interview. Um, right. that, was, that was pretty wild to see her in that light. Um, yeah. Yeah. That she, was she, 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 she lived in Woodhaven off Jamaica Avenue. And um, she, you know, in this real blue collar area. She lived, I, when I was a little kid, I went to Forest Park Day Camp, which was down the block from where she lived. And, and um, for one month in July of 58. And um, I told you I have these crazy vivid memories of childhood, you know. Mm -hmm. And and uh, so she lived in that area. And in '65, I we were we were members of the Cypress Hill Swimming Pool, which was down further west from Woodhaven, Woodhaven, uh, mm -hmm. across the street from Franklin K Lane High School, which was like backwood jungle, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know like really rough. Kids, it was like going to Cardozo, you know. So, but we went to that pool, that pool and there were still gangs around them. There were like Hispanic, like Puerto Rican gangs, and the L ran right over the pool. So, they were light bulbs down on us. And I remember they had a shoebox, and I watched the 15 year old girls dancing a wooly bully and, and satisfaction, you know, and I'm a happy man by the Jai Five. Vivid memories. I went there 100 years later to buy a car. From a friend that lived on Raven Boulevard, south of there, and I took my son, who was a kid then, and I said, "I want to show you where this pool was that we were you know, belonged to when we were when I was twelve. So I'm looking all over, and it's not there. So I meet up with this guy. We had dinner first. My son liked this Chinese buffet, so I took him there. And then we went to buy. I went to buy a telecaster, which I've done many times. And I asked the guy, I said, what happened to the Cypress Hill swimming pool? He said, the Cypress Hill swimming pool? He said, that hasn't been there for 40 years. <laughs> it was like Twilight Zone episode. So he said, and I talked all about this gang. He said, it was like West Side Story there, you know, for real, you know. Um, another girlfriend in 1980, that I woke up one day early and I was exhilarated. I said, I want to go to Cleft Music on Jamaica Avenue. And mm -hmm. she didn't know, you know, so I brought her there. And I couldn't find it, so I went into a porn shop, and the guy said, Clef Music, that guy closed in 1967. So I was, you know, in the twilight zone. <laughs> I was, I've been in my own little bubble, you know. 
Um, how about our mutual friend, uh, Angel Rissoff? Had what was that relationship? Um, I met Angel was with Rob Stoner at uh, it was before it was the rock and roll cafe. What was it called before? It was the other end. Right. So I, I went in one night. I had like two chicks with me, and, and I went in, and they were singing those guys. So they, they did We Belong Together, but, you know, Robert and Johnny. So I was such a, a, a freak for that stuff. So then I, I um, just remembered Angel, and I played in a bit with Harvey Brooks. We went out as the electric flag, and I played the Mike Bloomfield character. So this was shortly after. Angel was the lead singer. So we connected then, and then he loved the same music I did, you know, rhythm and blues, doo-wop, we could call it doo-wop in the old days, but rock and roll, rhythm and blues. So I went to his house and he was playing me his records at the time. I just did throat surgery. And uh, so he was so pumped up the way I am now. He was, I couldn't talk. I just let him talk. And he, he, had, he had some cool records. And uh, so we ended up becoming friends. I got into this group that I started with a guy named David Foreman, who was a songwriting partner called Little Isidore of the Inquisitors. And Angel got involved in that, became very popular in that. I produced two records for Angel that he got some really good recognition from. And he wasn't happy with me while it was going down, but I said, when it's over, you know, mother's going to love it and, you know, you're going to be great. And it was for him. And, and uh, he was really, uh, you know, a real talent, and uh, he, he had, had an unbelievable voice. voice, unbelievable. And he was the coolest looking guy, you know. He, had, he looked like, you know, there was only one tougher looking Jewish guy that I ever met, you know. And uh, and I used to bring him to shows. I did shows at Symphony Space. I would do these um, doo-wop shows, and I, he lived on the west side, up the west side. So I pick him up, and I would bring him to because he enjoyed it. And we played with some really eclectic people. So I remember. He, be yelling out the window, he was a real in a Bronx guy. And, um, but uh, he was, you know, he was cool. The guy was the coolest looking guy and he could sing, you know, so he was like a chick magnet. And, you know, I like to always be around those chick magnets. <laughs> Angel was quite the lady killer in the day. Yeah. I remember yeah. it well. Um, and so how about um, Ronnie Spector? How did, how, how did you start producing? Wait, before we talk about Ronnie, how did you go from being this kid playing a nylon string acoustic guitar and singing to being this incredible lead guitar player who also produced and composed well, music? It didn't happen like, you know, overnight. Right. For many, many years, I, I was with this guy through our management, uh, David Foreman. AKA Little Elizabeth. So we had written a couple of songs and he was eager to record them. And he had recorded some stuff on his own. He was in the jingle business. And I told him that he, you know, he, he could use a producer. You know? So he trusted me. And I went in and I produced two songs for him. One called Go and the other was called I Pray For You. We did I Pray For You with Steve Love's Loft. Steve Lovell's with the group, um, oh, uh, they had a hit, uh, not, uh, uh, oh, uh, um, Louie Louie, but, you know, not Louie Louie, the king's Louie, 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 I, that one. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, so Steve, yeah. Steve, was, Steve was in that group. 
So we went and we recorded. It was very crude recording, if I pray for you. He did go in the Weezy Cena studio, and, and he trusted me to produce it. So it evidently came out so great because I carry all these sounds in my head. There's no like uh, methodology or procedural thing for me. I was going to say, did you did you can How did you how did you know, how did it was it instinctual to just know what to do? Well, I, I know music from a technical sense, you know. So, but so combined with the sonic landscape I have in my head, uh, and I would work. I had you know a good technician. We would uh, create some nice, uh, vivid, uh, you know, uh, um, landscapes. So, so, um, and once I did that, then uh, I did two Little Isidore and the Inquisitors albums that got like a plane, this green album we did, like Felix Hernandez called it the Sergeant Pepper of Doo-Wop. And we were writing those songs and singing them. And um, I did them, uh, I found a room in Orange, New Jersey, that was Herman Levinsky's room with Savoy Records and so. The, I used a lot of room and sound like they did in the old days. And, and uh, so it, it, I would record and use the room to, to create the sound, you know, and, and um, it's a longer story, but anyway, Don Morello, the drummer, who was a, was a master, he was on the first floor, he had a drum teaching studio there, and he heard something, he was blind. He came up and he said, I'm hearing things I like. And because I was doing all this swinging and stuff, and, and um, I was by myself. I remember a woman fan came by and she said, you know, where are the guys? And it was like, I'm sitting in a spaceship with a technician and creating this stuff, you know? So, um, and what the song that we did, Angel did, Angel did a song called Harlem Hit Parade. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it became so. a staple in the, I bumped into the beach music scene through it. I heard about it, but we were given an assignment from Felix Hernandez to do a bunch of bumpers for his radio show, the Harlem Hit Parade, and to write a theme song. So I drove with David Foreman in a blizzard to the studio in New Jersey, and whoever showed up got on the record. Some of the guys didn't show up. So it ended up that we wrote this song called Harlem Hit Parade. I created a track, and an angel sang it. And like put him on the map. I mean, they they went wild. And I said to the Angel, we were doing you know high fires. I said, man, this was like 1955. We would have a bona fide hit record, you know. And it was really everyone was locked. That's like it was just a great capture, you know. And we also that night did about 31 bumpers that we just made up on the spot, you know. Um, I'm blessed that I haven't lost my creativity, you know. So whatever that is, you know. But um, Angel and I we made the record, and the rest, I mean, you can you know, go on um, YouTube, Hollywood Parade, Angel Russell for Little Lizard and Inquisitors, it's a, it's a killer, you know. I, I'm definitely going to check out the Harlem Hill Parade. Um, and how, so how did it lead to Ronnie Spector? How did that relationship happen? So we had a manager, one of many, her name, Janet Usselow. Um, Janet was a fan of Little Isidore Inquisitor. She used to come to our gate. And uh, so she managed Ronnie. So we first got together with Ronnie in a hotel room. And they told Ronnie about me, like my knowledge of, my vast knowledge of uh, rock and roll. So 
She wanted to do a show at the bottom line, and she wanted to do an acapella segment. So we worked out a couple of Frank Lyman and Teenage songs, and um, we did them. I know it was a long time ago, maybe 1996, something like that. And um, so we did ABC's Love, and one I can't remember, but I developed this long-standing relationship with her and her husband. And um, I produced a Christmas record for her. They told me they didn't want to be specter-esque. So I did, it was a real departure from that. And uh, it was Christmas once again. It was originally recorded by Tommy Edwards and Frankie uh, Lyman. They had, they had him recorded in 57. So um, I kind of modeled it on that arrangement. And uh, she killed it. And, and uh, I've had a couple of gigs before we locked down. I filled in her husband, John, called me. I was in the studio. And he said, we need you. We had a mixed up. Our guitar players in, in China. And we're playing a uh, Westbury music fair. And this big outdoor jamboree in Connecticut. Uh, I forgot what it is. A big outdoor festival. So. I immediately got an anxiety quotient, like went on the scale of one to 10, went to like 260, you know. So it's fine, you, you know, this stuff's in your DNA. I said, I don't know all your segues. I don't know the you know, rhythm of the show. So we had a rehearsal, it went great. I, you know, they loved it. I had a ball. I taught them uh, the happy organ and played it, and it was, it was a guest, you know, and she loved it. Um, so they wanted me to, be with her, but uh, you know, you know, I did something for her, some triage work on the recording she did. They didn't want me to change anything. They wanted me to augment it without really changing it. So I did that for her. I don't want to mention the names because I don't want to piss off anybody. But um, uh, but at any rate, yeah, I've had a long-standing relationship. And speaking of Christmas, it makes me think of Darlene Love because I saw her do. The Christmas show at Letterman every year. When uh, anyway, so how, what's your relationship with Darlene Love? I've worked with her a bunch of times. Like, I did a show with her. I was musical director for a PBS show with Foxwoods in November of 2000, mm -hmm. and I got Lala Brooks on the show. Because Gladys Horton from Muffalitz fell out at the last minute, so I had met Lala through Jack Nietzsche, and he told me that she was dynamite. And she ended up being incredible. I mean, she, she was the voice of the do run run. And then, right. so um, Darlene was on the show. We had the 14 songs that were incredible. And they aired three, you know. So, but uh, yeah, it was, you know, and I played with her in Key West. I filled in. I did it. It was a private affair for very, very affluent people. That each person had their own private jet, you know. Um, and wow. So, um, I bought all the records, 1963. It was a record store in Springfield, but it was on Horace Harding called Larry's Records. This ties to the videography, by the way. So, <laughs> um, so I, every time, uh, like, he's a rebel. I didn't know it was Darlene Love because it was sold as a crystal. Um, Zippy Duda, all the Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans records. And then when, when she finally had a record on the name, like, Wake Up My Bobby Company gets home. I had all her records. I was a huge fan of Darlene's. Anyway, Larry's record store, he had pictures 
on the wall of all these local groups. So in 1965, I saw this group, it was, it's the, the name was the Court Justice, and it was Vinnie Graffio. He was very precocious. He was, you know, for guys 12 years old, with the older guys that were 15, 16, which was a big difference then. Right. He had a garrison belt on, they were like, kind of like driving the Detroit wheels, and Vinnie was cool, you know? So, I was like, then once I saw that, I said, well, no, we gotta, we gotta get together. Because I played guitar, he played guitar. I remember I left and I had a friend, the Jaguar, he had a friend, the Mustang, and he had to do something. And the Jaguar was a much more expensive model. So I did something I never do. I lent him my guitar because I love the guy. And he put tape on, electrical tape on the back. So he flipped it over and said, V. And, uh, and you know, I, I had, like I said, I got a thousand vinegar school. So, okay. So how did you go from all of this kind of music to Aaron Carter? The one, the one act you played with that my kids would, would like. How did you end up playing with Aaron Carter? And my kid too, because when he was a kid, didn't mean anything to me, but he was thrilled. Jimmy Greylauer. Jimmy was a producer and he worked for Atlantic Records for four years as a VP over there. So Jimmy was a and, and uh, he called me to um, do some recording, a couple of things for Aaron Carter and um, and his other group, M2M. I recorded some stuff, done a lot of stuff with Jimmy. And uh, Jimmy's a you know, very, very talented guy and a talented producer. And, and, now, what is it like when you're playing on a track for like Aaron Carter? I mean, was it a good song? Did you like the music you were doing? Was it crap? Was it? I don't know. We did Ico, Ico, or I Want Candies. And so, you know, to me, it was just normal, you know? But <laughs> I didn't know who he was. You know, I was at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my, my kid, you know, he loved it. You know, he was a little right. kid. I didn't, you know, I, I really kind of like got out of music in the early 70s. Like I, I'm really strong from 55 to 71. I'm like, you know, I have a crazy, uh, um, I just remember every day I might have a date fetish. I always had a date fetish. To tell you a quick story. Um, we had a um, Plymouth Belvedere we got, and it was 57. The push button transmission on the passenger side. Right. When we, when we, when my father went to get rid of the car, I took it to the Zambucci brothers of Corona, and I drove with them. So the guy's looking the car over, and he sees in the back, there's that little piece of cardboard under the back windshield, or whatever it's called, and it had 1958, 1959, 1960, and I carved it in with a key. My father never knew about it. Who look back there? And he didn't understand that, therefore, it made him really agitated, even though he was getting rid of the thing, you know, he got $75 for it. Um, he couldn't understand it. So I don't understand it. I've told most people, I was always aware of the dates uh, of everything. I remember everybody's birthday. I don't know what it is. I, people tell me it's a gift, um, but I never really understood. Mary Lou Henner has this. Yeah, I know Mary Lou. Yeah, she did. She gave us some exercises to help our 
memories? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't have to that extent. Although I do remember Red Letter Day, so the day Marilyn Monroe died, exactly where we were, and obviously those kind of things. But I can't remember. Um, like I don't have what she has, but I do because music. I was always drawn to music. Um, of course, we were TV kids. We grew up, we were glued to TV. So we were right. TV, rock and roll, baseball, and football for me, you know, and, and um, because we didn't have this, you know. So if I had a yo-yo, I was good for a summer, you know, with that. <laughs> well, we had a game that, you know, we played that, you you know, you go like that and, and, and push a, a, a needle would spin and you move a wooden piece for moves. And that's, you know, so it was, it was- That was the game of life where you used to spin the thing and- Right. Yeah, it was different growing up then, Vicki. I mean, you know, because you grew up at that time and we learned to socially interact. So I say he's my son, so he, he's comfortable with older people and he has uh, picked up a lot of my uh, uh, mannerisms, but um, some stuff I said to him, you know, you don't have it totally down here, you know, you were working progress, but he's he's like <laughs> he's like a fifty-year-old. This guy and served him well in business, you know. I said one of us needs to go legit. I said one of us needs a proper job. My my real claim to fame is I've never had a straight job. I was going to ask you that. Never. You've never had. No. No. I have some jobs, but I wouldn't call them straight jobs. You know? But. Is your son musical? Yeah, and um, I have him uh, the greatest guitar teacher, Larry Salzman. He's one of the um, elite studio guitarists in, in New York. And uh, he gives him like three hour lessons. Also, I know Larry for you know, many, many years. And uh, so he teaches my son. My son's his best student. And uh, my son knows how to ask the right questions. And he's gotten quite good on the guitar, you know. So, um, I never pushed it on him, you know, because I didn't want him. I said, you know, you have to have a proper job, even though he's a finance. I don't know how proper that is, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, but uh, yeah, he, he's a uh, he's a good guy. We're buddies, you know. And sometimes, if he's messy, I become his father. You know. So, <laughs> I have a twenty-seven-year-old son. He's a good guy too. So he, he also yeah. he's also got a real job, which is a good thing. Real jobs are good. So, all right. So, how about Elvis Costello? How, how what was your uh, association with him? That was a, a vinyl episode we recorded on the Backstabbers. Mm -hmm. He did it in a low key, and we did a phenomenal track. There. You can hear it go on YouTube. Elvis Costello, the Backstabbers. So, we made a track that would rival what uh, Tom Bell did on Gamble and Huff. I mean, it really was really great. And we did one other song, the title escapes me now. We had um, Victor Axelrod on the piano, and um, he was part of the Amy Winehouse school. And Conrad um, Korsh on bass, who was with Rod Stewart for 100 years. He's incredible. Um, and uh, we, and Elvis was cool. I'm the only one that can take a picture of Everybody wants to take a picture, and I don't want to. I didn't want to do that with him. So um, I actually have a gift for him, a corporate event. And um, coming up next April, well, he's been stunned, so I'm going to try to get him to come sing a couple of songs. To me. Wow. You know, you brought up a keyboardist, and I just wanted to say, I don't know if you 
knew Mike Finnegan, but I just wanted to pay respects. Mike Finnegan um, passed today, and it's a tragic, tragic loss to the world. Um, but the first time I, I met Mike, I knew that he had played on Electric Lady on Electric Lady Land, and he had played in on Still Raining, Still Dreaming, which was like my favorite track from that Hendrix album. And uh, I chased him down on his way to the bathroom, and oh my God, you know, and anyway, um, he sat at this very table with me and we had to sit down, let's say like two years, not even two years ago and just yeah. unbelievable, unbelievable vocalist, unbelievable keyboardist and um, he will yeah, be sorely missed. I hope it wasn't COVID. Yeah, uh, no, it was not COVID. He had, uh, he had right. cancer. Yeah, he was, yeah, oh, horrible. Anyway, so I don't want to get morbid, but I just yeah, yeah, yeah. pay my respects. Electric Lady, you know, I recorded there a gazillion times, but the first time I was there was when I first opened the people that I work with at Associated Studios, you know, they heard it was a happening thing. So we were there in 1970, you know, and, and, wow. uh, and I've done a, a lot of uh, vinyl and, and Bulwark Empire with it there. And, uh, and uh, it's, uh, what can you say about it? I mean, it's just a tremendous place. And of course, the power station um, did a lot of recording there. Um, yeah, this was the album, the Hendrix double album. That was uh, yeah, yeah. crazy, yes. And so also another weird connection we have, not a connection, because I don't, Joey Sykes is just a Facebook friend of mine, but I saw a picture of you two. But Joey's yeah. singing in the babies, and last week, John Waite, the original lead singer of the Babies, was on this show. Yeah. So that's another weird six degrees of uh, it, just all over the place. So, yeah. Johnny, what, what is there anything that is OK? So we haven't even talked about Kenny Vance and the Planetones, like this whole doo-wop thing that you do yeah. that is like a whole different trip from, from your blues and your rock. Yeah. Um, what what was that always part of your life? Well, you said you always knew the music. I was there with it when I was when I was doing the Flamingos. I only have eyes for you. I I was tuned into it, you know. And, and and I know every record that was out right now. Oh, Dream Lover, Venus, or Frankie Avalon, because I watched American Bandstand every day. Right. And my grandparents got me a transistor radio in '59. Before that, we had a Philco portable radio with the cell battery. <laughs> Remember being on the beach with here and see love by Phil Phillips in '59. So I knew every song, and um, if it was a airplay, I knew it, and uh, I loved it. It was like it was so like surreal. It might as well have been broadcast from Mars. I didn't know how they got it on this. I mean, I would hear these songs because I made it the magical part of it was, was because I was so young mm -hmm. uh, that I wasn't analytical. I just it was just the feeling that it emitted that I felt was so powerful. Later on, when I was like in junior high school, I was drawn to a lot of uh, um, songs that were depressive in nature, you know, and I would play them and, and just be, I, it was just <laughs> a friend. But, but um, yeah, I mean, the music is, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's the antidote to all the bad, you know, it really is. And, and um, uh, so what was the question? <laughs> um, I don't even remember, but that that sounds like a good answer. Um, oh, the doo-wop, how you got into doo-wop. Oh, yeah, well, anyway, so, so Kenny, um, I was with Rainy and Rainbows, you know, many years, 50 years ago, 
But we, we moonlight, we was the rock, but we were called them and us. They wanted me and I ended up, my parents told me that you go to school, you go to, you go to work. So I said, mm, let me ponder that. <laughs> so I joined this band. I was the youngest guy and the oldest guy was born in 1938. But we, we really clicked because I knew all his music that, you know, the, the Gaylords and the Hilltoppers. So um, anyway, we were a rock band. We played 300 gigs a year. We lived together. And uh, we used to moonlight as raining and rainbows because three of them were original members. The lead singer was Dominic Zaputo, a.k.a. Randy. So we um, would play uh, all these shows, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, I forgot the question now. I'm starting to slip. Okay. About doo-wop, how doo-wop. Oh, yeah, right. So, so uh, anyway, Kenny's and Janie Americans, this was like the end of there in 1971, right. 72. And we used to play community gardens with them. The Hunker Munker Mystic Colossus, all these clubs in Queens. And it was a zoo because that double bill was big. So um, I became friendly with Marty Coopersmith, the guitar player. He was a street, he heard me play. And Kenny was a little standoffish in those days, and he's 10 years older. So, but you know, years later, when I was a little Elizabeth, he became very interested in me. So I went to his house in 1992. And we had a great meeting. And, and uh, so the next day, his manager called me, who was my manager in 1975. I was so incestuous in this stuff. So right. I said to him, well, he said, Kenny loves you, man. He wants to do something with you. So I said, fantastic. Let's talk about remuneration. And he said, I'll get back to you. And, <laughs> and a few years later, we did. And uh, I ended up, I played at the... Um, Kenny was, uh, I, had, I did the soundtrack to looking for an echo. He needed some extra material and he needed me to finish some stuff that started. So I was producing it. And um, then he had a gig at, uh, I don't know what it's called anymore. It was the big arena in Rutherford, New Jersey. What was it? Uh, Brendan Byrne Arena. Brendan Byrne, yeah. And so, so, yeah. So he said, I need you to, um, to uh, do the gig for me. All my guys. Are so I remember we had rehearsals in his basement. Alan Gordon was there, Gary Bonner. I brought a guy because I had to do so much singing instruction to assign parts that I said, by the time I get there, I'm not going to have a voice. So um, after we did that gig, I, I still looked pretty good then. <laughs> this is like <laughs> thousand or something that, that it was just like a little younger version of what you're seeing here. So, so, um, so, so, um, yeah, they said, you have to be in a group. So I didn't declare myself, but at, at some point, I, I partnered up with Kenny, and I ended up producing about eight records for Kenny that he's done incredibly well with, including an acapella record that was critically acclaimed. Um, I did all the background vocals, and, you know, I, I became Kenny's musical director and his, his guy, you know, so, and that's my connection to the Bronx table, because those guys oh, that, that was my last question. The Bronx Tale, how did this happen? It happened because, well, the beginning of the story is Tommy told him to see Billy Joel at the garden, and he approached him about doing the music for Bronx Tale, and Billy didn't want to do it. So Tommy approached Mark Rivera, and Mark said, oh, yeah, I'm all in, you know, let me get Johnny Gale. So he reached out to Jimmy Braylauer, and the three of us got together. 
And then we went to Chaz's house and I sat and we, we wrote songs and recorded and and then it just died as those things had to do. I remember we up in the studio. How long ago was that, um, Johnny? In the beginning, maybe, I don't know, 2015 or something. Because, you know, I saw Bronx Tale the first time he did it as a one-man show in a tiny little theater in East Harlem. Right. No, this was, like a zillion years ago. Yeah, this was later. So they were, I guess Tommy was a music guy, you know. He was the right. So, so uh, he said, you know, there's no music business infrastructure anymore, so I'm trying this. And I said, because I'm not a Broadway guy. I said, you know. I'm, he said, well, he wanted the authenticity. So I said, are you sure? He said, I'm positive. So it, it, it died. I remember we were at um, a studio up in Westchester, and I had the Soul Survivors there, and we did a session. And then they got bad news from Bob De Niro that um, it was off. So six months go by. I mean, I'm used to, you know, if you're in this business, you right. have to fix him. I'm with my mother, who was 90 years old, the God rest her soul. And um, I took her on some errands, so we put phones in the parking lot of CVS. And my phone rings, the cell phone rings. I picked up his Tommy. And he says, we're back on. I said, okay. He said, we got Alan Menken. I said, wow. okay, my mother's listening. And, and uh, I said, because uh, I need you for authenticity. And I said, I said again, are you sure? And he said, I'm positive. So um, yeah, I got involved like and I got I spent many hours making uh, taking Alan. He just said he would, Alan would send me stuff, and Tommy would tell me turn it into something, you know, make it something. And uh, I I did a lot. I, I even wrote the opening song. I didn't get credited for it in lieu of it. They put me on salary, but that's another story. I, and I don't want to make anybody angry now. But I'm, I, it was a great experience. I, I met because uh, it was. Only Broadway experience I had was when I was a kid. You know, my mother took me to see Oklahoma or Oliver, you know, really, you know, with the, or, or, and, and it was great. It was so I, I really got in, into the inner workings of it, you know, and I would rehearse. There were three production companies that were co-producing it, and, and uh, so I went up there to rehearse the cast. I tried to teach them how to manufacture doo-wop sounds, and I'd say. If you're making that face, you're never going to be able to make the sound. I said, now look at me and sing my face. <laughs> all the, all the, wow. the honchos were there. And um, I did a lot of work with Ron Melrose, who was the arranger on the show. I did a lot of additional arranging. Um, and um, the orchestrator used my demos to write the orchestrations. On. You know, his underscore was his. I didn't do that. But the songs, I did a lot of work on. And wow. then, in the credits, I was like very uh, featured in the credits and in the play. It was wild, you know. And then uh, it ended. Um, De Niro made some disparaging remarks about a former president, and I knew that most of the constituents that loved that show were fans. And I watched it, and I said, "Oh, we're going down in flames." And, and uh, so anyway, the, the numbers started to be off. But they weren't making them not. And then, uh, you know, then maybe it'll come back, who knows, but I've met a lot of great people for it, really talented people. And it was uh, one experience. And while I was doing that, I was doing Scorsese, uh, um, I was doing vinyl. So wow. I was really busy. And now I do landscaping in my backyard and I watch the reruns of the life for me, you know? So, <laughs> so, so 
before we go to thank you for all these stories. So moving ahead is yeah. what calls you? I mean, you do so many things. You produce, you do, you score, you you do film, you do now Broadway. Do you have any ambition to write your own Broadway show, a musical, or anything like that? I never had an ambition. I never <laughs> had an ambition. And, and uh, I don't want to be a guy that just gets old sitting on the couch. I can't be that guy. I'm always got to be physical or something, but um, I'm involved in some things. And you know, people, they're very passionate, you know, so I don't know where it's going. You know, I'm just happy that I'm healthy still and I'm able to do to show up for events, you know, and uh, I'm grateful for whoever's still around that I love and care about, you know, so, um, but I have no, uh, no path that I'm on, you know, um, so, you know, just, I suppose the way I've been, you know, just have bundled into a few things once in a while, had, uh, I never had a big bonanza. But, you know, a couple of little victories, you know, every once in a while, mostly a lot of defeats, you know, kind of the nature well, of the business. Yes, it is the nature of the business, but you are extraordinary, incredibly talented, and so gracious and fun. And thank you so, it was so nice to spend this time with you uh, after all these peripheral things all these years. But um, I'm sure we were in a basement in 1971 in Bayside. Oh, no doubt. I remembered you. Like you were like, well, I, I couldn't place it. But now that you, you came out of the box so strong that I got chills, you know, and I said, oh, I, that might throw my, because I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty masterful sit down comic. If I stand up, I'm a, I know you said to you, but when I sit down, I can fire like a Gatling gun, you know. But, but then when you came out with that, I said, oh, my God, I, I, I remember you, you know. I remember you when you were a kid. I remember him. I mean, I got, um, you, know, you want to hear Vinnie Graffio stories, I've got thousands of them. And, uh, oh, I, I definitely want to connect with Marty Miller because that is too funny. I have a very funny memory. Marty lives in, in Florida, I think. I haven't been spoken to him in Eon. We had a drummer, Marty Silverman, one time. Unfortunately, he was killed in an accident when he was a kid in 1970. A guy and him, fooling around with a motorcycle. He got hit, he went down, and the next day he died. And I remember... It was the first funeral I went to of a contemporary. And I just remember his mother crying, Tatala. It was just went through me. I can feel it now. Oh. And uh, it was, you know, another drummer named Marty. And then Marty Miller became our drummer. Dennis Levine was a keyboard player. Um, and uh, he was what, was it, what was the name of your band with, with Vinny and Marty? Um, we called ourselves Flood, but <laughs> A lot of bands, you know, a lot of, I've been in a lot of bands and, and for some reason people like me to be in bands. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I think it's my sense of humor. Well, you're a nice guy to have around, Johnny. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been a long time coming and I look forward to a long friendship in the future. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Vicki. Have a great rest of your night. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.